they did want Gandalf for blacks to join the service. Mm -hmm. so that was really interesting. Anyway, I recommend the series. Yeah, thank you. Five came back. Five came back. Can you remember that? Five came back without writing it down? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like Frank Cathra, Billy Wilder, all the top the top Demille. directors. They what? Demille. Uh, no, not that he was too old, I think, or something. I don't know. But they're top, all the top. Well, you know, see, see. It's okay. <laughs> oh, we can get started. The Lord be with you. And with thy spirit. Bless the Lord who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So this morning we're starting with the third chapter of Second Peter. I think we got to 12. We were in 12. We were in 12. Oh, you were in verse 12? Or? Uh, chapter I mean, what am I saying? We were well into... In fact, I think we did finish two, didn't we? No, was it I think we stopped at 2.12. That, that was, was the previous week. Oh, well, that's right. I wasn't here last week. So, okay, I'm I think that was where. Yeah. I think it's okay. third chapter. Third chapter, yeah. Okay. Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So, let's start there for a second. This indicates that the, the, the first epistle and the second epistle are going to the same people. And... Peter's also mentioned that the the epistles of Paul have are attained the status of scripture. And so when Peter is talking about the things they learned, the things they're holding true to, and the scriptures that they, they read, what we have to remember that for the early church, the scriptures were the Old Testament. And so he's going to use some examples of the Old Testament coming up. But now he's wrapping up his letter by reminding of them of what's important and what they believe. This is, you know, our task is always to grow in a relationship with Christ. But we do that by remembering what he has done for the world and for us in our lives. So it's always a continual movement of going forward and looking back at the past. Progressing and remembering. Those are our tasks. And we do that through various means in the church, through the church calendar where we narrate the, the events of God's salvation for us. I have a quick question. Yeah. I think it's quick. When he says, um, this is now my second letter to you, He's not, he's just saying, um, since this is Second Peter, 
that the whole thing he's been saying is his second letter to you. It's not that it starts right here, mm -hmm. correct? Yeah. Okay. That's it? Yeah. He's, but he's calling them to remember not only what he's written before, what he's written now that they've already read through the first two chapters, but also all the things they've learned from Paul and uh -huh. the church and from Scripture. Uh -huh. So, verse 3, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So, apparently the, these false teachers were coming in saying, you know, you guys are holding to this, this idea that Jesus is coming again. Where is he? Why hasn't he come? At this point, it's probably been 30 years since Christ's death and resurrection on the cross. And so their question is, you guys keep talking about this coming of the Lord and his coming again. You guys say it every Sunday. <laughs> and where is he? Obviously, he hasn't come yet. So this, these things that you are believing aren't true. Look at the world. Look at the things that are of this world. The world has continued on the way it's been since the beginning. And nothing has changed. What's different? Why do you believe this thing? Mm -hmm. So he continues. For this they willfully forget. That by the word of God the heavens were of old. And the earth standing out of water and in water by which the world that had then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens, the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of godly men. So, can anyone tell me what exactly he's saying here? What, what examples are, is he giving to refute this idea that the word, world just is the way it is and it's always been that way? Well, like Brother Scarlett always says, you know, this world is not perfectible. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of Noah, too. I mean, all that stuff was going yeah. on. He's just like, oh, well, we're getting on a boat, and that's some kind of a remnant that's being saved. Yeah, yeah. It. He's saying that he's making allusions to Genesis mm -hmm. in the beginning, where God divided the waters from the land. Mm -hmm. So this creation started with these waters and by these the same waters he saw the wickedness of men and wiped the earth with them preserving noah so he's saying that the world hasn't continued the way it's always been it hasn't always been this way that god has taken an uh, an active part in the affairs of this world and if we lose sight of that if we lose sight of his actions in the world, then we can be seduced by false teachings. Um, John, one thing, or in general, one thing that jumps out to me at this, reading this at this point, is that um, my translation says they deliberately forgot, mm -hmm. forget, present tense. They deliberately forget. 
And I think that's uh, an interesting thing in, in light of false teachers. You know how they present half-truths quite often? Mm -hmm. That there'll be an element in there you think, huh. Uh, but then there's the other part that's like, hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's a deliberate attempt is what is what I'm looking at this time around. Yeah, and I'll circle back to that. Okay. But to begin with, you know, Bishop talks a lot about narrative and the idea of it's interesting that God who is unchanging, timeless, interacts with us through narratives, which are essentially bound in time. You know, the, this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. It's always temporal. But he chooses, he chooses to interact with us through narrative. But one of the things about narrative, we're surrounded by narratives all the time. You know, buy the new iPhone, and you'll be happy and satisfied. That's a narrative. Do this, this happens. And then it always fails to live up to the promise. And the, the, the great irony is then what do we do? Well, we buy the next iPhone. We never say, oh, I don't need the new iPhone. We go, oh, I need this new thing. This new thing will make me happy. Mm -hmm. So we're caught up in these narratives. But narrative is just this happens and this happens and this happens and this happens. What gives narratives shape is the story. What is the story that we're telling? What is the story that we're living in? What is the story that the world tells us? Well, it doesn't like to tell us a story. It just wants us to be caught up in the narrative of those momentary, do this and you'll get that. It doesn't have a, as Bishop would like to say, a telos, an ending. You know, we're, the, the classic American narrative has always been, Work hard and you'll be happy. Do this and you'll get these things. But what is the story that, that you're telling? What do you get out of it in the end? And so it's always important to focus on the story that we're in. The stories of the Old Testament, if you just hear, you know, the story of David, in isolation, you just have this interesting narrative about this king in, in Israel. It's God's redemptive work through mankind and towards mankind. That's a story that we're, that we're learning. That's why it's important to, to go back and read scriptures. And I think that's what Peter is getting at here, is that we have to focus on the story. Otherwise, we tend to forget. We tend to get caught up in these little narratives. We tend to get seduced away if we don't do that, the important work of actively remembering things. So we always have to stay conscious of the story. So here, the false teachers are offering a different narrative. They're saying that the world has always been the way it is. You're believing in this guy who says he's coming, he hasn't come. What's the point of doing what you're doing? And that's something all of us will always have to struggle with, is that we've all been born again into newness of life. Now what? 
Now what happens? Why don't we, as soon as we're baptized and take Christ into our heart, aren't we whisked away to heaven and given our reward immediately? What is the purpose of this Christian life in this time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming? What is our task? So that's what I ask you guys. Why do we remain in this life? Or, or to put it another way, or another way to look at it. You know, you get married, you have kids, you raise your kids, they go off and are able to live their own lives. You've done all the work that you're going to do. You retire. Now what? Now what do you do with your life? Why do you continue to live? What is the purpose of living when you've fulfilled all your functions? So the, the question is, what is the purpose of life? To serve and glorify God. We're still, the whole time in all of that, we're instruments where his love and his grace can flow through us to other people. We're we can know wisdom and align ourselves with God so mm -hmm. that we instill that in our kids and have that to give to other people. We live in that peace. We know Christ. We accept his peace and let it permeate our being so that we're just walking around as Christ. Yeah, and I, I'm not disagreeing with you, but I want to take it in a different tack is that for a lot of other churches, the point of the Christian life is once you've been saved, the reason the church is still here is to save other people, to go out and do something. But, and it's true, we are called to go out and save other people. We are called to bring other people to Christ. But, I want to push back on the idea that it's merely a functional existence, that we have a task that we have to do. Certain things that we have to perform, certain duties that we have as our existence in Christ is not merely as a worker bee. It, there is an aspect of that, but it is to have what is our what is the purpose of living in this newness of life in this time between our conversion and our death. Is it just Girl. Yeah. I Father John, is it to prepare us for eternity? For for our relationship with God. It's it's relational with God and it's preparing us to go into eternal life. Yeah, I think so. I think heaven's it's heaven's a new earth. Yeah, I think We still have a lot of work to do in our lives to grow closer to God and not to be there are certain there are still parts of us that need to be healed. I think that's where the saying, you know, the good guy young mm. may have come from. I mean I, I've been around a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and Yes, I'm not good. <laughs> no, come on. God's just 
constantly working in us, saving us. Yeah, and, yeah, and it may be the case that, or I would say it is the case that we are here for other people. Not that we are trying, always trying to convert them, but we are here to have relationships with other people in Christ. And so as we live out our experience in Christ, we participate in his love with other people. And so that means that there never comes a time when you cease to have a function. Unlike the society where it says, you reach a certain age, you're useless to us now. Everything your generation did was wrong. You guys were racist and, and judgmental and we're done with you. We're gonna fix things in our generation. And then that fails and then they're accused by the next generation. They just keep going on. Yeah. What the grace God has given us in having these lives here on earth after our resurrection into the life of Christ is to participate in the joy of God here and now in this world and to be beacons to other people. Not that we have to go out and convert everyone, but that through our love for God and for each other, we show the world a different way, a better way. So to me, that, that would be the reason why things continue going on, why the second coming hasn't happened yet. God loves humanity and wants it to be wants to be in relationship with everyone. And so it's just more and more opportunities for that to happen. It seems like it's going backward though. I mean, when I was a kid, everybody went to church. And now, not everybody goes to church. Yeah, and uh, I've often wondered if, whether that's necessarily a bad thing is that lots of people went to church, but how many of those people were truly dedicated to Christ or they just did it because it was a social thing because everyone else did it. Yeah. I suspect that the, what we often call the faithful remnant, those people who have dedicated their, their life to Christ and engaged in a life of prayer, is probably the same throughout the history of the church, the same side. It's just the other less dedicated people have fallen away. Because now it's, without a doubt, it takes, takes a commitment and dedication to go to church every Sunday. It's not the socially expected thing of people anymore. Continue with verse 8. But yeah. beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. 
The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So what, what would you guys say about what is the role of repentance in the Christian life? What is how do we go about <coughs> continually repenting of, of our faults? What what is the what does that do for us? And why is that necessary? It reminds you of all the bad things you do, and therefore you need God. It's, it's sort of a circle thing. <clears throat> well, Carol mentioned growth. As we <clears throat> come to understand ourselves more and more, and as we come to understand our faults and flaws and repetitive stupid decisions that we make, that it, we have a place to bring all that, that we have a place of forgiveness as we confess, that we have a place of growth, and that it is a continual falling forward, you know, falling down, getting up, going forward, and it is a place of hope, and it is a place of um, potential. I see it that way. Yeah. We repent our sins because our sins are the result of us turning away from God. You know, and so, in a way, sin is absence from the presence of God. When we turn away, we do these things. We, you know, obviously, there's the big sins where. You know, if you murder someone, no, you're not supposed to do that. You've directly gone against God's commandment. But in subtle and little ways, there's often times you turn away from God. And anytime our actions are not in Christ, it is, in essence, are turning away from God. And so we have to repent of that. We have to say, yeah, this was wrong. I screwed up here. Forgive me, but also help me not do that again. Help me to overcome this, this flaw that's in me. So it's always a, a, and that's also the benefit of this time that we have on earth is to work those things out because what are the possibilities if we die with still simple parts of our nature? Obviously, one would be hell. That's a possibility. The other one is God just goes, oh, that's no big deal. Come on into heaven the way you are. That's probably not going to happen. He's not going to let people who still have simpleness in their nature. The other possibility is something like purgatory, 
where we're given the opportunity to work that stuff out with God's help. And then the other possibility is those parts of ourselves are burned away so that we are not we we will be in heaven and experience the joys of heaven but it will be much less than if we fix those things in this life (coughs) and had healed those parts of ourselves and sanctified those parts of ourselves so to me that's the, the possibilities. I, mean, I don't know if anyone has any other ideas. Father John? Yeah. Father John, um, I've always, you know, I've always considered the, the heart like a vessel. And um, every time you do something bad, every time you, you sin and everything, it begins to fill with this tar-like, this black tar-like substance that the devil feeds off of. And if you can just continue to sin and do it, it just fills up to pretty soon there is no room in that vessel for God anymore. And for me, repentance is emptying that vessel, emptying of the tar that allows God to come in your life. So for me, this, this sinning closes that vessel and makes you further away from God where when you repent, you're you're fill, you're emptying that vessel and you're allowing God to come back in. So for me, repentance brings you ever closer to God. He allows you to come into your heart. That's the way I've looked at it. No, and I, I would agree. And you know, I've always envisioned it like a bucket that has a bunch of muck and gunk in there, and when we receive baptism and, and the water washes it clean, or when we receive the sacrament, it washes away the loose stuff, the stuff that we know that's going on and that we can get rid of. But there's still gunk up on the sides of the bucket that continually has to be washed and slowly eroded until we get the, everything clean. And as long as there's gunk in this vessel, you can only hold so much of God's grace in your life. You can only experience so much of his grace. And as we clean out that sinfulness, we can experience more and more his love. It becomes much more profound as we continue. Can't the bucket. <laughs> <laughs> St. John John of the Cross talks about that a lot. He talks about, in the ascent of Mount Carmel, he talks about it's one analogy is like it's a window. And Mm -hmm. the more you keep letting God and cleaning that window, you know, then it's like the sunlight can shine through it. And you're, and it's like you are being godly because God is becoming one with that and shining through you to other people. But he also describes, like it's, it's really deep and dark when he starts going, yeah, if people could see what our sins are, he said they're like grotesque animals or the worst thing you could imagine. Like like what you were saying, Ed, just like this darkness, like tar or whatever, and you would want all of it cleaned out if you would see it that clearly, you know. And so it's like, but, you know, Christ came to draw that to himself and to take it from us so that we don't have to carry it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and the irony is is that 
Jesus is always saying, here, give me all your stuff. Mm-hmm. And what do we do? We go, no, I'm going to, yeah. you can have some of this stuff, but this <laughs> one here, this is who I am. This That's is true. me. When you're talking about Father John, to me, this verse really talks about the patience of God with us. That, you know, he says, don't forget this one thing, you know, that one day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. And he's not slack concerning his promises towards us, you know, some count slackness and that he he's long suffering that we do come to that repentance, that his long suffering is what brings us to make that radical pivot towards him. I, I think of repentance as just a radical pivot toward, you know, always turning towards him. And as we grow, we always catch it. We remember it's that remembering of, Oh yeah, it's not about, it's not in my own strength. It's in his strength. So he, to me, it speaks of his patience, his long suffering with us, and that over time we learn to constantly repent and turn to him like, oh yeah, I can't do it. You got to help me. So that, that's how I see this verse. Yeah. So yeah. then just all the gunk in my life, just that yeah. I, there's not, there's nothing in me that I can do that. I can't do it on my own. I need him. And he's, he's profoundly patient with our lungs, with our shortcomings. And like what Cheryl was saying, as we as we go along, then we're able to be that beacon of light to others in the body of Christ and outside of the body of Christ as an encouragement of that light. You know, they're able to see Christ in us. So I, I don't, that's how I that's how I kind of see this verse. No, and you, you make it a very important point because Peter is elevating patience to a virtue here which was not the case in the ancient world. Patience was not seen as something good. And it is fundamental to the Christian life is patience. Patience with ourselves mostly to, you know, oftentimes when we screw up, we can be extremely hard on ourselves in the wrong way in damaging ways, seeing, thinking that that somehow makes us unlovable to God. And that, that just goes, that's just human ego to think that God came to save everyone, but my sins are so great that he can't fix me or work on me. And it's also an excuse that, oh, I can't work on my stuff because it's too hard. And so making the point here about God's patience with us is an important thing to remember is that we have to be patient with ourselves and with God who is leading us through the spiritual life at the pace that we can handle and not to, you know, get angry because I've been baptized and now I should not have any more desire to sin or that I should be perfect and everything in my life should be perfect. Or why isn't God giving me these things? Why is he making me suffer? He's not making us suffer, but he is allowing us a portion of suffering that if we would trust in God would actually be to our benefit.
inventory makes a lot of sense to me. I know we're not required to believe it, but we're allowed to believe in it, I think. And it just seems like if we haven't achieved what God would like us to be by the time we die, that maybe there is a place where we can go and work it off. Yeah, I think traditionally our issues with purgatory have been because of the way the medieval church defined it as that even though you're forgiven for your sins, you still have to suffer some sort of punishment for them. So you have a certain number of years that you're going to spend in purgatory because even though you've gone and repented and been forgiven, you still have to pay the piper. And so that developed, and then it developed that, well, the church has had all the prayers of the saints and we've been banking all this goodwill for them, from them. So if you give us a certain amount of money, we can get time off for your, your relatives who are in purgatory. And so that was very damaging, obviously. But to me, purgatory seems as something hopeful, as something that God's grace continues even after we die and can still work with us to facilitate our sanctification. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So my, my question, I think this points to the Christian hope, but what is the Christian hope for us ultimately? What is our ultimate end? Resurrection. To fully live in God's presence. Not, not just, not this existence of in between, so to speak, mm -hmm. but to fully live in God's presence. Yeah, and those are both correct in that our hope is not to a disembodied spirit who lives in heaven and plays a harp and and. Hangs out on clouds, you know. It's not to. Our hope is an embodied hope. 
our hope is, yes, we hope when we die that we're in, you know, Abraham's bosom, that we're there, experience the beatific vision where we are in God's presence all the time. And unlike here, where we don't always grasp it or sense it, we will always know that there. But then to take that and to live in new life, a resurrected life, in new creation, where obviously we don't know what it looks like. Scripture is vague on it because it would probably be impossible to describe, you know, but that it's new creation where everything that is good and godly here is remade and renewed in harmony with God's will at all times. When my spiritual journey has been through various denominations, but when I was with the Presbyterians (laughs) and we studied the Westminster Catechism, I do love and draw upon uh, what is the chief purpose of man in the catechism there. And it is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever and ever. And I come back to that over and over again. It can be trite if you just rattle it off or if you don't think about it very much. But if you really dwell in that terminology, it's rich, it's beautiful, and it covers a whole lot. And if we really do glorify God, and you know, our chief purpose is to glorify God here on earth, but as we get into heaven, that will be on steroids, so to speak. So we will be glorifying God, and we will be in his presence, enjoying him forever and ever. And I think that's kind of hard to match. <laughs> yeah. And, but it does point out one thing, that it is theoretically possible. And we know from the experience of some of the saints that it is achievable. We could achieve that knowledge and love of God that exists in heaven here now if we put in the work, if we live a life of prayer, if we work on repentance, if we continually grow in our love of Christ, that some portion of that heavenly joy is possible even today in our lives. And, you know, to me, it's always one of the things I always try to work on, and I fail miserably every time, is to remember that what goes on in heaven? It's a constant celebration of the Eucharist. It is the Lamb of God being glorified and all the angels and all the saints worshiping him. Well, we do that every Sunday here. But do I feel the same way as I'm going to feel in heaven? No. But it's possible for me to, to get some... Yeah. Get closer to that. It's a taste. Yeah. Yeah. 
and to always try to work on that. But you know, yeah. But then you get distracted by somebody clearing your throat or something. <laughs> <laughs> Or your mind just wandering. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, to your grocery list. Yeah. And I think when we talk about works, we often talk about, we often think of good deeds. To me, the real work that God wants us to do in this life is to work on our worship and our prayer. Is to work on being present with him all the time. Yeah. And that's hard to do because there isn't a a cheat sheet or a guide. It's like, if you made the to-do list, be present with God. <laughs> it, okay, but how do you do that? Well, it, it just takes effort and work and it's not easy. I have so many distractions. I have post-it notes in my car and all yeah. over my house that just say, be present, be present, yeah. be present. That helps. It really does. What, help. what does it say? Be present. It's just like Brother Lawrence, just be mm -hmm. present with God. Just be present. Because you're in your car, you're like, okay, I've got to get to church. It's like, no, you're in your car. Mm -hmm. You're just driving. Uh -huh. you're, not, you're not thinking about the outcome. Just be present with God here. Yeah. And it just keeps... Reminding you to develop that muscle, just be present right now. Yeah, it's why the early church continued to practice of the synagogues of set prayers at set, at set times. It's mm -hmm. always this time you're going to remember God. Mm -hmm. And whatever you're doing beforehand, it always draws you back. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them, in them of these things, in which are some things are hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of Scripture. So, here we have an important passage where it says, yes, Paul's epistles can be hard to understand, and it's okay. I'm not even sure I understand. <laughs> that's, that's always what I take Peter to be saying here. My friend, not my friend, my son, my 14-year-old, well, he just turned 14, sent me a TikTok, and it was like, you can't believe in the Bible and in God because the Bible says there's two different counts of Adam and Eve, and then it says, like, and the world is flat, and then the next morning, and all these things for a whole minute, it just went on and on. I'm like, I'm like I, can, I can answer all of these yeah. for you. If you want to sit down with me, I'll answer all of them. No, I just want to watch this TikTok because his dad doesn't believe in God right now, or he hasn't for a long time, but... And so the next morning we had morning prayer, and in the Psalms it was like, the round world of blah, 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 blah. So I sent him that verse. And I'm like, just so you know, like the answer will come to you. The real answers will, you know. But if you want to be a scoffer, that just, it feels, 
it feeds your egotism to be a scoffer. And even us to make fun of them. You know what I mean? We can be all, oh, we know and you don't. It's just like, but it's true. <laughs> but I'm not saying to get all egotistical about it. It's just like understanding, you know, understanding that there's going to there's gonna be scoffers and what to do about them. Twist there. Twist it. And, 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 like, oh, there's all these other verses that say you can't understand spiritual things unless God gives you the ability with spiritual eyes to see them. You know, and even yourself, people are going to misunderstand us. Yeah. It, on one level, it's very easy to understand a lot of the Christian life intellectually. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think you guys have all heard of the Babylon Bee. Mm -hmm. They... They ask that chat GPT, that artificial intelligence thing, to give like an account of salvation. And it gave a perfect account, perfectly reasonable. Wow. But that's, there's nothing there. You know, there's no spirit behind it. Mm -hmm. And anyone can read the Bible and parrot out the things that they've been told. That's why a couple important things here is untaught and unstable. Mm -hmm. One of the the important things is this this book does not exist in a vacuum. It does not give a guide how to interpret it. This is written by and for the church. And so that's what you always have to be aware is, is of somebody who just picked up the Bible and decided to become a preacher that day and started their own church. That happens all the time. Mm -hmm. It's another thing for someone to come and submit themselves to the authority of the church and willing to go through all the steps and to be taught and to be willing to be corrected. That's something that we always all have to work on is that willingness to be under the, the authority of the church. And by the church, I don't just mean like me under the bishop or something like that. I mean under the the whole weight of tradition and of the whole history of the church. I think that's the reason that the Roman Catholic Church doesn't encourage Bible reading because they think, I guess, they think that there are too many ways to interpret it. You need a spiritual leader <coughs> to guide you through it. And I, and I think there's some truth to that. I mean, I read it. Sometimes I get finished with morning prayer, and I think, what, what does that mean? I don't get that. Mm -hmm. uh, the books that you gave me are, are fabulous helpers, mm -hmm. uh, but... It takes maybe four pages to explain a paragraph, and it's. Uh, but I, it it isn't an easy thing to read through. No, no, and it's why Bible reading is best done in a community with other people. Mm -hmm. You know, if you, I'm not saying. Don't read the Bible by yourself. That's not what I'm saying. In addition to, yeah. But in addition to, and 
and doing things like Bible study are important because, and it's always been a tradition in the or in the Anglican Church is to have a lot of scripture and to have that done in community with one another. Because one of the great temptations, especially in the modern age, is to come up with your own private interpretation and then find a church that fits your interpretation. And one of the strengths of the church when it's united is that it can has in the past and I think there's still hope in the future that when the whole church comes together, we get at the truth. We got it at the, the councils where we came up with the creeds and came to an understanding of the Trinity and said, <laughs> these things are heresies. We have a, a gal in, in the choir that is Eastern Orthodox. And she said, I find there no differences between our churches. Why we are separated um, doesn't make any sense to her. And so she takes communion here, and I think it's fine that she has yeah, to be with me. But that's, that's always a great irony, is that the most contentious debates will be about the smallest differences. Yeah, exactly. She said, about, you know, one of the few differences is she said, we go this way. Yeah. And she said, and how important is that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, she she can't. She said, I, I studied my church, and she said, the differences are so small that they don't even make sense. Yeah, I mean, one of the... The most contentious issue between the East and the West is the Philippi in the Creed, which is, we say um, proceeds from the Father and the Son, mm -hmm. and they don't say that in the East. Mm -hmm. It was just added by, um, I think it was, it wasn't Charlemagne, but it was around that time. There were some issues about whether God or Jesus was as fully God as as the Father. Right. And so the Western Church just added that into the, the creed. And that's very problematic to the Eastern Orthodox who say that the Holy Ghost proceeds from the Father mm -hmm. alone. Another, another big difference uh, between the two was that in... Um, Western Catholicism, Catholicism, it's the Pope who was over the rulers of the countries, and which is one of the reasons why they had the Holy Roman Empire, which is one of the reasons why, you know, Martin Luther, uh, you know, he, he uh, was protested against the Roman Catholic Church and, and also the uh, Church of England, because the Church had so much power where the Eastern Orthodox Church they are not over governments. The government is is the higher authority as far as ruling the people. Whereas with the Western, with the Western Catholicism, it was the Pope who was the, the higher authority over even the rulers of the people. And that was one of the major uh, uh, breaks between the two churches, as I have read and as I understand. 
Yeah, I, there's lots of reasons for the, the great schism, but I, I was referring to those little things that yeah. we could probably work out if we all came together. I mean, mm-hmm. But I mean, we in the continuing church can't really lecture anyone about divisions and stuff when you know we broke away from the Episcopal Church, we immediately broke into a bunch of other yeah. groups yeah. because every guy wanted to be bishop. Um, I know you're trying to close up John but there's one thing um, from this this last scripture we were reading about that again jumps out at me is the um, part where it says some of these things are hard to understand which ignorant and unstable people distort and um, when I see the word unstable at least in my translation it's unstable I think of the Benedictine um, uh, way of looking at stability in our faith and the importance of stability and what you were talking about earlier about going back to the story and going back to the story. Not the narrative necessarily in terms of this happened and this happened and this happened, although that's part of the story, but to go back again and remind us, you know, ourselves and, and each other in the church of the story that we have here, and that gives us stability. Yeah. And that when you start um, either purposely <laughs> deleting part of it or out of ignorance <laughs> deleting part of it, or it will lead to instability. Mm-hmm. And then you've got even more problems on your hands. But that's what I see here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's... To their own destruction. Mm-hmm. That's one of the benefits of the lectionary and our church calendar is that each of us will have a tendency to emphasize the portions of yeah. Jesus that we like. So for every person, we'll either yeah. emphasize the resurrection or the more dour among us emphasize the cross. Mm-hmm. And so we need that story that we replay every year during Holy Week to bring those two together in our lives to keep those yeah. that emphasis yeah. together. But one final thing about this passage is the untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction. Mm-hmm. It's important to re- to remember those people who are false teachers are really hurting themselves most of all. And to have, to try to have compassion on them, because that's the only way we have any hope of ever changing them. That, yeah, it can be destructive to us and to the church, but it's also really destructive to them. And our first instinct probably shouldn't be anger so much as sorrow and sadness for them. Well, and separating ourselves from them because I was under one of those and then I was like, I I have to go. This is not biblical. Yeah. And I wish you the best and you have so much knowledge, but Mm -hmm. I can't. This is where you're disagreeing with God. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wrap this up here. Okay. Verse 17. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. Mm-hmm. So this this goes right into what Connie was talking about, which is the patience and remaining steadfast. But also gets into the whole point of the Christian life, which is the growing grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's not the knowledge of that I acquire and I know things. Mm-hmm. Knowledge in this way is the experience you have. Mm-hmm. You could you could read about what a, a lemon meringue pie tastes like. <laughs> you had lemons before. You never had a lemon meringue pie, but you read that it's sweet and it tastes like lemons. And you can describe it perfectly. You have this perfect knowledge. But until you experience it <laughs> and taste it, you don't have that. And that's that's all our goal is to take this the stuff that's up in our head and lodge it in our hearts. Taste and see that the Lord is good. (laughs) It's good that he commends us to do that. That feels good. Mm -hmm. Grow in the grace. Oh, okay. (laughs) And experiencing of God's presence. (laughs) Right? Yeah. You crack me up. Why? <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. But, Not but that's, yourself. that's an important thing is that that's it. ultimately we only grow in his grace. Yeah. That's the only way we grow is through his grace and being being in his grace and receiving that grace is the only way we ultimately grow. And, and I do think he steers us certain ways. I mean, when I went to St. Michael and All Angels, and I heard Bishop Borsch say, you didn't have to believe in the Trinity to be a Christian, I thought, I need to get out of here. Mm-hmm. I need to go someplace else. And um, I, I just know that he had, he had a hand in that. Mm-hmm. And I found this church. Yay. Lucky me. Yeah. <laughs> Lucky for all of us. Yeah. We're fortunate. Well, anyone else have anything? Finish off. I think the grace and knowledge go together. You know, we have to have that grace and knowledge. It's that that synthesis that we talk about of, of, of that experiential, the experience of grace, but also the knowledge to explain what that experience is, too. I, I like that. It's like they have to hold hands. Uh-huh. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face to shine upon us and be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace today and evermore. Amen. Thank you, John. Thank you. Yeah. I love how he said beloved so many times in that, <laughs> I mean, in that, that chapter. Can't say 